so many smiles this morning, this evening, whatever time it is for you <laughs> as you come on. It's wonderful to see you. And I, I see that we're, we're blessed to have Donna Martin with us today. You didn't get to see your picture last week, Donna. <laughs> so, so great. <clears throat> well, let's en enjoy a few minutes of sitting together. More than likely, most of you have heard the teaching and maybe you heard me offer this reminder that as we sit in Zazen, our upright sitting is an embodied expression almost a celebration or a small ceremony of expressing our, our true nature, our Buddha nature, the essential wakefulness that's within all of us. So we're sitting not so much as an instrumental activity to create or reach for something distant, but to, with our body, express something present. Even though we may not feel like a Buddha or think of ourselves as possessing this quality of freedom, wakefulness, it's still our nature. And that paradox of being a limited human being impacted by causes and conditions and our histories and the context of our lives. And at the very same time, expressing this inspiration of freedom and liberation. And so we sit in this extremely simple way to express it. And remembering that that's what we're engaged in is important because it's easy to get lost in trying 
striving. And I'll remind you of all of this, which you heard many times, for another reason today, that as we sit, if you're willing now and then, if you just take a glance at the screen and look specifically at someone and know that that's how that particular Buddha is manifesting right now. Or look at the whole screen and see a whole sea of them, all in their different expressions, all completely human, but also complete. Their true nature, the one true nature, expressing itself through their human nature. And you can just take a little blink now and then, or a little look. And notice what it's like to continue to express your own by your upright, steady, quiet sitting, but also to witness it in others. Even for a moment, And as you take a look now and then, even just for a brief glance, in some ways it's our responsibility to look at each other in this way and to see deeply the foundation of loving presence. And also to know that others are seeing you in this way whether it's the way you feel about yourself or not, they're seeing you in this way. And it's an opportunity for you to receive that reality too. And as you engage these practices, you'll notice more than likely the impact of seeing and being seen in this way. Subtle things in your body and breath. And maybe even as we sometimes say, you'll notice different parts that arise. Maybe some that are tender or joyful, shy, embarrassed, curious, even fearful. It's welcoming them all. without too much reactivity, just being the container.
offering loving kindness, not just to others, but to parts of yourself. And let's chant together the verse of the robe. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Today, I will reflect on the last of the series of um, the teachers that I've been so blessed to have in this uh, series of reflections that I'm offering, which were to begin to lead up to the final week of my Dharma transmission ceremonies. That's, of course, been postponed. Um, but my uh, joy in reflecting on these teachers and offering you some history and weaving those histories together uh, is no less uh, important or joyful, even if the ceremonies are, are delayed. Someone asked me recently, was I terribly disappointed that the ceremonies were, were not going to happen as we hoped? And I said, well, I was more disappointed that I wouldn't get to travel and, and visit with people and be with you uh, than I was about the ceremonies because in some ways uh, this is um, like something in Zen we call Tangario where the um, the monk would come to the, the gate of the temple and knock and ask to be uh, allowed in so the uh, he or she could train and mostly they're told no <laughs> in the beginning uh, and one continues and stays at the gate and keeps knocking and knocking to demonstrate one's um, um, real commitment to the, the training. And so here I am knocking and knocking, waiting uh, to be let in. So I, I began, of course, with my uh, root ordination teacher, Zen K. Blanche Hartman, as she was the essence of the heart of traditional Soto Zen practice for me at the San Francisco Zen Center. And her Dharma name, Zinke, of course, means inconceivable joy, uh, a good reflection of, of the heart of the practice. And then next I spoke about Charlotte Joko Beck and her step um, away from formality in some ways, but deeper into everydayness, into everyday Zen, as she called it, to life as it is and the wonderful innovations that she made. And then I spoke about John Gladfelter as my psychology trainer and psychotherapist and mentor as the container for my own growing up beyond my own family, beyond clinical training also, as a, a key turn in my life. And then later meeting Ron Kurtz and uh, and Donna and their teachings on mindfulness and the bridge of uh, psychotherapy to spiritual practice 
and that was essential in turning and opening uh, my own training and teaching. And today, the, the last uh, senior teacher I want to speak about is uh, Richard Schwartz, Dick Schwartz, who was the developer of the internal family systems model, talking about multiplicity and interdependence, living from our true self. What, we're just, what I was just asking you to do was in some ways a reflection of what we might do in a Hakomi setting, but it also opens us to the vast inner world that we come to know. I also want to say that uh, Blanche, Joko, John, Ron have all passed. And Dick is the only one of these major teachers still alive. Two, two memories as we begin this reflection on how it bears on our practice uh, today. When, when I began my Hakomi training in Oregon in the summer of 1994, which is our first year, Ron had an unpublished manuscript with him that he was reading. And the way Ron taught is he would take whatever he was reading and studying at the time and use that as his jumping off place to, uh, to train us. And this manuscript was something that had his attention. It was by someone named Dick Schwartz and it was um, pre-publication manuscript for internal family systems. And so it's, it's fascinating to me looking back that um, what he was reading and studying was he began to um, inform and extend the method of Hakomi. So in the very beginning, my Hakomi training was infused with this multiplicity model. And then fast forward many years later, uh, Dick Schwartz asked me to come to an inpatient treatment center in St. Louis, Missouri, where he was testing out and implementing his model um, in this challenging treatment environment, mostly with uh, people, young people with eating disorders. And he wanted me to introduce um, Hakomi and especially loving presence to the staff who were trained in traditional clinical methods, but also using internal family system as their primary model. And so that day, as I was um, beginning the training, Dick introduced me to the staff. And he spoke about his respect for Ron's work in developing Hakomi and hoping that I could add something to their professional development for this uh, larger staff. And he had told me that he would stay for um, my introductory remarks that followed. And then he would leave uh, me to do the work of the day uh, because he was very busy and he needed to, uh, uh, to go on. Dick did his introduction. I did mine. He stayed for the first exercise. And then he stayed the whole day. He ended up not leaving. As we went deeper and deeper into the steps of loving presence, uh, with the staff because it had meaning just as Dick's work had meaning for Ron in that first training Ron's work had deep meaning for Dick in understanding the embodied immediacy of mindful practice now stepping back a little bit from these two memories within a couple of years of completing my initial training in Oregon with Ron and Donna I was asked to speak on a panel of very distinguished therapists. I'm not sure why I was asked to join these people, but at the University of Texas, um, researchers and the, the sort of headliner for this group was uh, Dick Schwartz and our friend Betty Holmes, who's a great bodhisattva and has brought many wonderful aspects of Hakomi IFS and Buddhism to Texas, uh, sponsored this, this program at the University of Texas and Dick was one of the senior presenters. So it's the first time I'd heard him describe the model. And it was really stunning. Uh, she then brought Dick to Austin for the first IFS training there, in which I participated. And uh, over the years, I continued to follow um, 
my partner Aaron was managing the retreat center where Dick was teaching and where Ron had taught. And so we were had an intimate connection beginning in the late 90s. Um, curiously, I said last week I'd been at Esalen Institute for the first time in 1993 where I met Ron. I went back to Esalen um, with many of our friends to do trainings with, with Dick as well in IFS. And one year, um, when we arrived to uh, at, at the Esalen Institute, some of you are familiar with this, um, <clears throat> I, uh, you see I'm arranging something here, sorry, uh, trying to find where I can get to it. <clears throat> we arrived at, at Esalen, we have to check in to get our room and find out where we're going to be. And I went to the office and on the glass window before I entered the door was this. A picture of Ron saying that the founder of Akomi had died. Of course, I already knew this because Donna had called me, but it was such a beautiful thing to be greeted, having begun my training there with Ron. And <clears throat> to have him greeting us in this next uh, training that we're going to be involved in. Over the years, um, I was, I would come back to Esalen, and Dick would come back to Austin. Here we are, and uh, actually our, our home, and this is a wonderful photo by Cassie Wayant, who's done so many wonderful photographs for us. <clears throat> I like to share images. I'm so visual um, that I want you to see a little bit into the, the past if we can. Having done the Akomi training as a, as a trainer alongside Donna in the UK, I later introduced IFS um, to that group and the wonderful Jenny Bennett who uh, helped us uh, introduce Hakomi in, in the UK, also continued that. And Dick asked me to give a keynote to the IFS conference in, um, in Boston in 2011. And my topic was, was, was the Buddha an IFS therapist? Um, and over the years, Dick and I have co-led workshops on IFS and Buddhist practice in various places and written a couple of books, chapters, and uh, and at one point, I was even asked to officiate at his wedding with his wonderful wife, Jean. So we've become, in some ways, kind of close family. Like I was privileged to be with Ron, I, I feel very, very um, privileged to, to do that. And one other curious um, bit of background. Uh, because so many of the people in England had, and in Europe, had both the Hakomi and IFS training, they asked if I would start a little consultation group, which I did, uh, with, with uh, some of the people that you see online even now. One of them was John Copeman, who you know, and who has come on uh, inquiry here. And John just automatically would say, oh, we're having our consultation, our ZHI group, he would put it, Zen, Hakomi, and IFS, because those were the three branches. And I was so curious that John used that sort of acronym because I said, John, do you realize that there's a Chinese symbol but the English transliteration is Z-H-I, Zhi. I don't know how to say it actually in, in Chinese, Zhi. And it means wisdom. This combination of these things. So it's interesting how they've come through me and into me. And now, you know, as I work with you in inquiry, that all of these tools are things that have influenced not only what I do, um, but Peg went through all of those trainings too and has been a key factor, Hakomi and IFS, in developing the Apamata way of teaching, of teaching Zen. I think without Hakomi, I would not have had the experiential body-centered foundation for mindful practice. And this experimental approach to deep learning. And without IFS, I would not have had this, this simple and clear language and an accessible map to translate these Zen teachings for students using this experiential body-centered practice. 
So here's a couple of examples, just so we, we come back to our practice. Let's look at the Four Noble Truths for a moment. I sometimes say, and this is, I know is not accurate, it's just my way of saying it, that the first two Noble Truths are about um, Hakomi and the second two about IFS. And this is what I mean. The first Noble Truth, Dukkha, dissatisfaction grounded in the misunderstanding of impermanence and interdependence, that life is characterized by this, things are not quite right. There's some sense of, uh, of suffering uh, that comes with just having a life. Uh, it's the nature of conditioned phenomena. It's not a, something that's wrong. It's the nature of conditioned phenomena that we all live with this, um, this, this aspect. Dukkha happens. And the second noble truth, which has is it one of the words samadaya, which means that which comes up in response to dukkha, life as it is. This is the ways that we react to the reality of dukkha. We grasp, we push away, we ignore, distort experience in habitual ways. The fact of the ways experience is organized and the way that we have habits of organizing experience, which is beautifully um, Express and Hakomi are part of these first two aspects of our insight into the reality of awakening using Buddhist practice, understanding dukkha and our reactivity. Third noble truth, which has to do with the, the turn of Niroda um, about containing and working with these energies, not extinguishing the aliveness but also not allowing the reactivity of these habitual energies to harm others or ourselves. Nirvana, which is often talked about at this level, which is, is extinction. What's extinguished? Well, what's extinguished are, are, um, is our reactivity. And we have moments of nirvana, moments when we're free from reactivity. We're actually resting in our true self. And then the fourth Noble Truth, which is the Eightfold Path, we have a path of practice which allows us to be in accord with life as it is. Actually living from our center. And these, this containment is self-energy that is talked about in internal family systems. We work with all of our parts in a Hakomi way so that we accord with. And these are larger teachings, obviously, that require much more time to unfold. But to me, they became much more alive with these two teachings. And the first two noble truths become clear, and we can explore and transform our lives. And in the second, the third and the fourth, it's as if in IFS we were able to use the Comey methods to work with our parts. We chant this, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding the self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. In other words, unconscious ways of organizing experience result in unnecessary suffering, and we get good at what we practice. So if we practice clinging to our habits, we get good at them, and we maintain our cycle of unnecessary suffering. And the next two lines in the four practice principles, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Attending to each moment in mindfulness, inside and out, we gain a wealth of information about how we're constructing and maintaining unnecessary suffering. Really, who's running the show? Who are the protectors and managers that seem to guide our life? And who's being protected? And how can we relax the extreme roles that these parts take on and allow our true nature to come forward. Once again, these are larger teachings which we can open to, but I want to reflect on them just a, a tiny bit. And lastly, the Bodhisattva vow, which is our core vow. Beings are numberless. I, free, I vow to free them. We think of that as beings are numberless, I vow to practice for the benefit of all beings. But guess what? Beings are numberless inside also. All these parts that we meet. And I vow to free all of them. 
The second bodhisattva, our delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. There are an infinite number of parts in our multiple lives inside, and I vow to free them from their extreme roles and help them unburden. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The third, opportunities to wake up are boundless. I vow to meet every part that arises and find the self-energy that's in them. And Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it, the final one. The way of self-energy, of our, the fullness of our Buddha nature is unsurpassable, and I vow to embody that way of living. So you can see that there's a tremendous amount of, of influence of both Okomi and IFS in the way that we understand and teach uh, Zen practice. And I wanted to thank um, Dick, just like I have these other teachers for the last 25 years of his influence in helping us uh, bring something like inquiry uh, to you because it's made a, an enormous difference in my, my life personally as well as the lives of others. I, I say sometimes that I've spent, gosh, 45 years as a psychotherapist and working with so many people and watch them um, become psychologically insightful and open but it's easy to get stuck in these endless loops of self-reflection and self-identification and not have a non-dual practice that helps them also then step beyond. So everything is more self-improvement, another problem to work on. I've spent the last 25 years or so in monasteries and Zen temples training, seeing people understand the Dharma, even teach it beautifully. But often when people sit and things arise, they have no idea what to do with it. And the ancient teachings just to sit more doesn't help. But if you put these two things together, a capacity for deep psychological insight, an embodied insight, and a practice to help us actually see beyond just the ordinary personality that we seem to identify with, then we have this double helix of growing up and waking up to become a mature human being. And this is what all of these teachers have helped me, I think, understand more deeply and become more skillful in offering. How do we mature each other? Because that's what a bodhisattva does. <clears throat> Uchiyama Roshi, who was a, a wonderful Japanese teacher who taught many um, English-speaking and, and also European students, <clears throat> was asked one time, <clears throat> pardon me, the kind of question that students ask a teacher. They know the answer. They just wonder what the teacher is going to say. Like some of the things you asked me. <laughs> and so they said, Uchiyama, what is a bodhisattva? And they knew the definition of a bodhisattva. And Uchiyama said on that day in his simplified English, he said, um, I think a grown-up, <laughs> in other words, a mature human being. And all of these teachers support that maturation because that's what bodhisattvas do. Help us grow up and wake up. And these two things can't be separated. They are sometimes, but it's not a very full maturation. So those are the reflections of these important teachers for me, and uh, we'll go beyond uh, this. Um, but right now, I want to give you an opportunity to bring your own questions and your own reflections. Um, what's on your mind and your hearts today? How would you like to meet in ways that can assist in maybe touching some of those parts in yourself that seek freedom? As you're raising your hand by, by clicking that, I'll also say that I remember the moment in the big house at Esalen um, in a group with Dick where I suddenly realized, oh my God, in the light of self-energy, this energy of the space in which all parts arise and pass away, in the light of that energy, everything is transformed and freed up. And I could see it happening. And I realized that's what 
my Zen teachers have been saying, in the light of Buddha nature, everything finds its freedom. So please come forward. <clears throat> Give us the opportunity to meet in ways that we can actualize this kind of uh, opening. I guess I'm on, huh? You are. Oh, I see. Okay, I had to. I had to go through the the couple of messages that I'm not used to doing because um, I don't usually meet in this in this talk in this format. Isn't, um, isn't that how it is sometimes? Is when we're going to meet someone, we go through all these messages that happen inside about what it's going to right. be like to meet. Right, right. But here it is externalized. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just had a realization, and I just wanted to share it. When you were talking about the Four Noble Truths, I realized in the past, I've always thought of those as lists, you know, kind of linear, one, two, three, four. And this time, something opened, and I said, no, it's a, it's a loop, it's a spiral, because when we get to the fourth one, where we can end, you know, we can do something of the suffering. We can go back to, you know, the the um, dissatisfaction and, and and start reworking that. And I think that's what the life of practice actually is. That's the and, cycle of practice. In fact, the, the secret is practice. it's all happening at once. Right. Yeah. And I, I know that, but I just never so I never took the teaching of the four noble truths and felt it in that same way. That's right. And I think it's very helpful. So thank you for that. Sure. You know how I sometimes will uh, run things backwards to see how it, what I learned from it? Yeah, I love that. I do that well, sometimes. Think about it right now. If we engage in right. right view, right action, right, you know, the Eightfold Path, mm -hmm. then what's the one before it? Well, it seems like that begins to help us through that path provide a container to work right. with all the energies that are arising and help us move from reactivity to responsiveness. That's right. And as we do that, we're softening the ways we've reacted. Mm -hmm. so that reactivity, Samadhi, the second one falls away. And we have a new relationship with Dukkha, which is just life as it is. Right, exactly. Instead of fighting it and thinking it's a problem, it's like, oh, this is, this is. And that resting in life as it is, is, is the right, is right, is Marga, is flowing at the center of life. Right, right. So move it backwards, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, thanks for the reflection. Welcome. I think sometimes people feel that they can't, and I don't mean this disrespectfully at all, but play with the teachings. In other words, uh, enjoy them and open them up and turn them around a little bit and find out where is the place that has vitality and aliveness for you. The great Jungian analyst James Hillman one time said, the etymology of the word that we use, all the, the word explain, X plain, means to lay out flat like a map. We can explain something, we lay it out like a map and you can see it and understand it. And he said, I think we've, We've had enough explaining of these kinds of things. We need to get these ideas up and dance with them. <laughs> make them alive, make them embodied. I thought you were going to raise your hand. You did. I can't see it on your face. <laughs> well, I just wanted to comment on my experience when we were sitting and you asked us to look at find somebody. And I looked right at Cassie. Are you there, Cassie? <laughs> she was right in front of me. And I started thinking about all that she does for the Sangha, mm -hmm. the generosity of her skills. And it was just very moving for me to think that, you know, this Buddha was sitting in front of me and all that she gives. But then when you said something about looking internally, it, it all changed and it was harder. But it was so much easier for me to look at Cassie and uh, think about her generous Buddha nature. 
And, and when you looked at her and you um, noticed those things, and what happened inside of you as you looked at her? I know you were going to ask that. Um, um, well, it just, it, it reminded me of my own generous nature right. and, um, you know, it, it, what it felt to me is just sheer gratitude for her because I remember, you know, looking for a something, a, a, a posting, I think it was a recording of an inquiry. And I think I asked Kim, I was like, do you know when this recording is going to be up? And he goes, well, Cassie does that. And I went, of course she does. You know, Cassie does, you know, and I think, I think that's what was going through me is just gratitude because I don't think I realize how much she does. Mm -hmm. And when I realized that and saw her Buddha nature, it just was so touching to me. Yeah. And part of my reason for asking you, and I, you know, this is that you don't actually in some ways have to look in when you look at the other what you're hoping to find automatically arises. Your good heart, your loving kindness, your compassion, more equanimity, more sympathetic joy with Cassie, all those qualities of a Buddha arose when you're looking at her, not when you're looking in. Yes, yes, I, I get that. And that's a very important point because most people think I'm gonna do this practice, go inside and try to fix myself. Instead of, I'm going to open my heart and look and connect and find that opening to be the path of awakening, which you know well, but you're giving us a good example of it. That's, that's why you knew I would ask the question. <laughs> yes. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about Cassie since you mentioned her, because in some of the practice groups we've been in, when a new person comes into a group, when we introduce them, um, we usually talk about the things that people need to know to make the group a safe place, you know? And uh, so we talk about confidentiality and showing up and all that. And Cassie would always say to them, and if Flint says to you, would you like to do a small experiment? Say no. <laughs> Meaning, this is gonna be an entry point for this kind of thing, so. A little fun Cassie story. Yes. Well, thank you for that. And and thank you for your Buddha nature, Cassie. I yeah. see you. And I, I appreciate all that you do. And she's been doing it for a long time. For sure. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We have Cassie next. <laughs> Does that bring something forward? You're still muted there. We'll there you go. Uh, I'm at my office house. I can't figure out how to raise my hand. Can't unmute. <laughs> Just cried all the way through everything Mary Beth said. Um, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, and uh, the way in which you're seeing me, that's really, really touching. Um, and I thought about raising my hand earlier just because... Uh, I wanted to um, share my deep appreciation for, I guess my analogy is your toolbox. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, if I present you with a screw, you pick up a screwdriver. If I present you with a nail, you pick up a hammer. If I present you with something that needs to be cut off, you pick up the saw, you know? Um, and for so many years, I never understood because you teach in such a blended way. And my experience with you is so blended that I never understood, you know, which hat, which tool, you know, that you were intimately aware of, you know, I just, I, I, I never got that. Mm -hmm. uh, and because, you know, my, the things that I particularly work with are also so blended within spirituality and everything else going on there that, um, you know, it, it, I didn't have like a separation there either. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for, for naming that. It's, it's part of the reason I'm actually separating it out now in these weeks and talking about these different teachers, because I can't even tell you, I mean, my life is vastly different because of these people. 
and it helps make a difference <clears throat> for others, apparently. Yeah. And if that's the case, then I stand on their shoulders, of course, and I'm bringing this forward. And that's what transmission is. And so I can't say enough of a thank you, but you find yourself today, Cassie, joining that group and people offering you that same oh. graceful thank you because you have made things possible that wouldn't have been possible without your presence. This is what you've transmitted. Oh, that's, that's new information. It's true. Um, it's also so interesting to be experiencing all of this, like in my mom's home. Like I'm in my childhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, to be physically situated there, but to embody this place that you practice with, that's an interesting. Yeah, that's a really close meeting for me. Yeah. And it, it feels like another layer of vulnerability because it's here. Can I be awake here? Right, right, right. That, exactly that. So I, someone <sighs> posted something the other day with a picture of a little Jizo and it said, do something radical, be yourself. It's amazing how we can't do anything but that and how hard that is. Uh, there you go. But to come to actually embody it and to come home to it like you're doing right now. And once again, I have to, just like I did with Mary Beth, emphasize the relational quality of it. It's yeah. not something you actually do by yourself. Right. This is arising because of the way we're seeing and being seen, the way we're connecting, the way we're understanding. That, so assisted self-discovery. Yeah. And the ability for me to uh, be close to family members who have such incredibly different political views mm -hmm. and to hold them in a deep space of loving and caring yeah. is something that is also really new to me. Yeah, if we take the teaching seriously that all things have as their essence Buddha nature, there you have it. Everyone. But because of the protectors and the habits and the layers, but that means if everyone softens, everyone is unburdened, if everyone has an ability to do what you're talking about that you're doing, that you'll discover that jewel, that bright pearl, that true nature. Yeah. So when we wish that everyone be free from suffering, if some of the people that we most have trouble with or even despise or are angry, if they weren't suffering, they wouldn't act like that. Oh, yeah. they would be in connection with their true nature. So it's important that we offer them our best. So thank you and your toolbox, all the thank ancestors. Thank you for your dedication and commitment and devotion. Oh yeah. For the last 20 years or so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have Donna next. Oh, good. There she is. Am I unmuted? Yes. You are unmuted. <laughs> it feels like my connections, uh, my my question is connected a little bit with what Cassie was talking about. Um, you and, and Ron and I all have many things in common, but one is this way of seeing how things connect, mm -hmm. you know, how, how IFS connects with Hakomi, how Hakomi connects with yoga, how, how all of them connect with the teachings of Buddhism. I, I love that. And, and uh, like Ron, I'm usually informing whatever I'm teaching with something I'm excited about and reading about. Mm -hmm. and, and lately, it's been more and more about polyvagal theory. Mm -hmm. So when you were talking about IFS and parts, 
I, I hadn't thought of this before, but it occurs to me that um, it, our embodied state, which, you know, I'm, I'm always bringing attention back to that, is um, either in what in polyvagal language they would call ventral vagal. I think that's self. And the parts are... And say what that is for people that don't know. Ventral. Um, the ventral vagal is the capacity to be, to feel safe and to connect, socially engage. Like show your belly almost. Yeah, yeah, to feel safe enough to be vulnerable and authentic and to relate. Mm -hmm. You know, in Hakomi, we call it loving presence. Mm -hmm. And it's really that. And then we can't be in that state if we feel unsafe. Right. Uh, and when we're unsafe in really simplified polyvagal terms, we're either activated, fight or flight, mm -hmm. or frozen or collapsed or dissociated, which is another dorsal vagal exactly. state. But it, it just occurred to me as you were talking, yeah. and I wondered if Dick's ever... Um, referred to this uh, if it's an interesting way of thinking about the parts mm -hmm. are the parts are never in ventral they're they're never in that really calm um, because feel, we feel safe enough to be really authentic mm -hmm. and relate from our true self to another yeah there's some work on interpersonal neurobiology, which includes that in the IFS community, which I haven't followed. So I'm almost certain it is because what you're describing, of course, is yeah. absolutely in accord with what we know and experience. That's okay. if the, um, even the Buddhist terms about uh, containment and neurota and extinction is the sense of deep regulation yeah. and non-reactivity uh so absolutely yeah i loved that also when uh, when we were reading about the real translation of Nerota, because it's sometimes translated as putting out those those flames of our reaction reactivity but it's not that it's it's containing uh, and not dosing it, but also not letting it get out of control, which would be those two other vagal states if anybody's interested exactly. in that science. Well, I'm glad you're naming it that way because it gives, gives a real, uh, literally gutsy sense to it, yeah. you know, of what that, that feels like. And, and just one last comment, and uh, maybe you remember, I think I told you one time that when I was teaching in Japan, um, Masaji, my organizer and translator uh, in an aside to something I was teaching about sitting and posture and how our uh, state of mind is embodied he said there's a saying and I think it's a Zen saying um, which is something like chosu chosoku chosu something like that and it means right posture right breathing right attitude Mm -hmm. which again for me fits in totally with um, my embodied state and, and the breath is such a key isn't it to our state of our nervous system expresses a state of mind and that's where we started today with zazen expressing yeah yeah even though we might feel quite otherwise mm -hmm. but if we take the postures we begin to learn something and we see the contrast, which of course is the way we teach, that contrast mm -hmm. allows this kind of awareness which we wouldn't have otherwise. And I love that uh, in Porges in his polyvagal um, theory points to our embodied state comes first and the story and the narrative and the beliefs and the reactions and the emotions all come out of that. So coming back, coming back to sitting, coming back to right. stabilizing, you know, is the key. And that what you just said is why when people say, well, should I get have these trainings? And I said, yes, do the Hakomi training first. Yeah. Then do the IFS, but that's what you just said. We <laughs> So the, the stories, the content, the way we work with that stuff comes second, but we got to start with this deep embodiment. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And I, I, I love how they all connect. People are getting a good uh, example of what it's like when we're together. <laughs> <laughs> we can go on and on because we love. No, this is a good thing. And, but it's also how we stimulated each other for the last 25 years. And I've been so, so, so immensely blessed to have you as a partner in teaching all this time. Uh, you've changed my life. <laughs> and likewise, been the same. So thank you. Love you. Thank you. Love you too. Sheila, oh my goodness. Hi, Flynn. I haven't seen you in so long. I know. I know. Well, I'm on the front lines doing the work that you're talking about. Um, and uh, recently, what Donna just said, and it's so nice to see you, Donna, and see a face. Of, I've heard so much about you through the years. But um, I talk about her with everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, moving on towards, um, towards EMDR, then with trauma training and... Um, and um, anyway, just a really quick question, Flint, in the last three minutes. How does IFS relate to the world situation in terms of um, all that's going on in the world? I wonder, it was just occurring to me as you were talking about parts inside of ourselves, parts in the world. And is there any place or peoples that you've seen that you think embody some of what we're looking for in the world? Well, that would be a very political response. <laughs> and, oh. and, and I would say, for example, and this is a personal opinion, but I just finished watching the first segment of um, the documentary on Obama. And, you know, certain people, you see these things that, that come up. Okay. People may have different opinions about it, but you see these yeah. things. No, uh, the, year that, the year that I did the, um, uh, the plenary session, the, the keynote at the IFS conference, I did a pre-conference institute with a bunch of people on peacemaking mm. and IFS. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I also assisted Dick and some other people at Esalen in which we brought together, I didn't do it, but I was there to help Palestinian Arab women and mm -hmm. Israeli Jewish women mm -hmm. and brought them together. Mm -hmm. And that was an embodiment of people who, I mean, I would see women sit together who basically said, I've been taught to kill you and hate you. And both of our sons are dead. Yeah. And they began to care for each other. So I know these are small responses, but yes, there are ways in which these things are taken into the outside system if we begin to work with some of our inside systems, we have more capacity for peace. Absolutely. Is, is it an inside out job then person by person, uh, depending no matter where, if you're in, if you're in Egypt or Israel or Afghanistan, it's an inside ways. job. Yeah. That, there was a group of these uh, women from Israel who were at the conference in Chicago one year, the IFS conference. And they wanted to start IFS trainings in Israel, mm -hmm. but they didn't have the money, but they had wonderful people to do it. And they didn't know what to do. And I stood up in this big auditorium and said, are you kidding? There's a bunch of Americans here who have money. I say, let's not leave the room until we raise the money for the training. How much do you mm -hmm. need? And they said how many five figures they needed. And we raised it all before we left. Wow. So I hear in that there's hope. You feel hopeful. Um, it feels like such an overwhelming job and so impossible almost. I don't have any false hope that the world will get all fixed and be fine. I do have hope that every one of our individual efforts makes a big difference. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. And we have those four practice principles, which we can engage now together which reflect everything that we've been talking about. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, 
compassion's way, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. <clears throat> Thank you so much. Maria. Thank you so much, Flint. Thank you. Appamada's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity. If you'd like to make a contribution, please go to appamada.org forward slash contribute. This link will give you an opportunity to offer Diana to teachers such as Flint and Peg, as well as other teachers. And also you'll see an opportunity to contribute towards events such as classes and practice discussions. Thank you so much, everybody. And I'll put that address in the, um, in the chat. There we go, the address to contribute. Thank you. And we now move on to the second part of our day or morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world, where we'll continue to meet and share. So if you'd like to just stay right where you are, if you'd like to continue to share, please do. And please take a couple of minutes break if you wish to as well. And I'll meet you back here. Thank you so much.